Welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you here, and today it's just the guys. I know we've had a lot of guests recently, and we've been honored to, to host them and have enjoyed our conversations with them. But just so you know that this isn't going to be an interview show like forever, <laughs> we're going to do shows every once in a while with just us on themes that we want to talk about, and that's what we're going to do today. And I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've recently uh, published a book entitled In the House of Tom Bombadil, and it's received uh, uh, you know, a nice welcome uh, from those who've read it and reviewed it. And I'm working on a book right now on uh, resisting totalitarianism, and I'm not going to talk about that anymore at the moment because probably over the next few months I'll talk about it so much you'll get sick of it. But <laughs> anyway, Tom, why don't you introduce yourself, and then Glenn, introduce yourself and tell us what we're talking about today. I'm Tom Price. I teach systematic theology. I teach Christian ethics and philosophy at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm writing, 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 and like Chris, on several projects. Uh, the main one is a, a, a one that is a little long overdue, but uh, your patience uh, will warrant the uh, result. And the other other two, are I'll be talking about more, but one is on the doctrine of creation from a uh, robust evangelical metaphysics, and one is on the doctrine of humanity. Um, and of course, the big project is the ethics uh, material. Excellent. Glenn. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I am a retired Reformation history professor. Uh, I am a senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview and a ministry associate at Reflections Ministries. Uh, I've got a book that I have been waiting for um, at Canon Press, um, just waiting for them to put it on their publishing schedule. Um, hint, 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 hint. Hint, hint, hint. <laughs> and, um, and along with that, I'm uh, currently working on a book called Flourishing in the New Babylon, uh, oh, nice. which is looking at the challenges that are facing the church in the coming years, some of which are uh, operating under the radar. Uh, although people who've been listening to the podcast are probably more aware of them than the average uh, bird is. Um, so anyway, that that's uh, those are a couple of my projects right now. Um, the, the topic today was suggested by one of the grumblers. All right. Um, now, for those of you who don't know, a grumble is uh, the the proper name for a group of pugs. Uh, and on Facebook, we have a group called the Grumblers, who are people who um, make fun of us and who... Uh, <laughs> and they do it brilliantly. Yeah. I must brilliantly. <laughs> they, they make life very happy, actually. Uh, yeah, and, and um, along with that, come up with, with uh, good suggestions for us some, uh, uh, sometimes. And one of them suggested that we we talk about C.S. Lewis's concept of the Tao. Um, now, this is a subject that really underlies a lot of what he writes, but is most pointedly uh, addressed in the book *The Abolition of Man*. And what what uh, the Tao is for Lewis? Now, by the way, if you're a little bit nervous about the fact that he's using non-Christian terminology here. Uh, he's not going east. Uh, I think he deliberately picked the term Tao because it, it does capture the essence of what he is about, but he's also using it as a way of getting past people who will immediately put up shields against Christian terminology. 
And his point is that when you look at, you, you look cross-culturally, you look at the Stoics, you look at the Jews, you look at the Christians, you look at the Chinese, uh, you look at, the, uh, the, at India, the Hindus, uh, you will find that there is a, a common set of beliefs about well-right behavior, uh, what we would describe as natural law, um, that, that cross all of these cultures. In fact, Lewis would argue that although there certainly are differences uh, between them, those differences mask a great deal of commonality. And he argues that the way you derive these rules is based on what he calls practical reason, using, uh, again, old terminology there. And his argument uh, basically is against people who reject this idea of a natural law tradition. They reject the idea of a Tao, reject the idea of universals. Uh, in his case, in the name of some sort of objectivity or scientific a way of approaching the world that gets rid of all of these kinds of assumptions. And in a lot of ways, the abolition of man is a systematic critique of that attack on natural law or on the Tao. Right. So. Yeah. You know, a couple of things occur to me as, as you're describing this and, and that, uh, that is, uh, those things are, there are kind of a couple of ways that people reject the Tao. So the, the, you know, the positivists that you described, people who appeal to, you know, scientific objectivity, they have their way of, of rejecting it. But there are other people who reject it uh, for ostensibly Christian reasons. Uh, we've talked a little bit about that. Uh, and, and I think it would be good for us to maybe address it from both angles, because knowing our audience, there might be people who are familiar with, you know, one but not the other. My guess is they're familiar with the rejection of natural law or Tao, the Tao from the standpoint of, of this particular tradition within Christianity that rejects it. And, and, and I think coupled with that is that there are differing readings of the Tao, differing readings of natural law. And so some of those I myself would reject um, all the while um, embracing what, what I think Lewis was up to as fundamentally biblical and fundamentally tied to the real. Um, and so j just kind of to throw out there, you, you do have versions of natural law that that, you know, um, th that assume that you can derive every kind of ought from an is. Um, and there is. What do I mean by that? that uh, because things act a certain way, therefore, we ought to do this. And so if you see something happening in nature, for example, one creature eating its its own offspring, um, then you can start to derive. Right. And so I think a lot of kind of protests are, wait a minute, um, you can't just look at nature and, and just derive a sense of obvious um, ethics because it can be ambiguous. And so we but but I think the true interpretation of the Tao and the biblical uh, natural law would agree with that. Um, and so we'll add those qualifications. And then you have another kind that thinks we can just get to it sheerly by natural reason, um, as though natural reason has the capacity um, to, to pull out from nature um, all these kind of rational moral purposes. And while I would embrace the fact that our reason can play a strong part and we can discern vestiges of it, we don't have the fullest picture. And so just those, those are some, you know, kind of qualifications before getting into what I think Lewis is up to. And, yeah. and, and you would. 
One, one of the things to note is that your, your first qualification there comes about because of an ambiguity of language. Um, before I ran into natural law in the sense that we're talking about it now, I understood natural law in terms of science, the laws oh, yeah. of nature. nature and yeah. if, you, it, you know, if you take it that way, if that's your starting point, when you hear natural law, you're going to make the assumption that therefore you can look at the natural world and draw your moral conclusions from it. And while there have been some natural law theorists who did that, it was actually quite common uh, really through the 18th century at, for example, the Royal Philosophical Society, which despite its name, we would describe as a scientific uh, society, they would have papers that people would write making scientific observations, and then they would draw the moral and spiritual conclusions appropriate from them. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you, you do see some of that. But... It, that's not really what we mean by natural law typically when we talk about natural law or the Tao. Um, the way I, I tried to explain it to my students is that natural law is the idea that there are moral laws that are written into the fabric of nature, that yeah. are written into the fabric. The world isn't just matter and energy. There are moral and ethical dimensions to reality that God put into it. And when we talk about natural law in the sense that we're using it now, those are the things we're looking at. And, and it's interesting here because some some um, ethicists, Christian ethicists, and moral theologians um, will, uh, of course, highlight the fact that Thomas Aquinas, for for whom this was was a very strong um, way of thinking about morality, they will talk of it in the language of theonomy. They will not talk about it necessarily in the language of natural law because they understand that this is grounded in the eternal law that is the being of God. And the second thing is, is that this this tradition, when understood in the Christian way, is really um, affirming the fact that creation itself doesn't have an independence from its origin in God and its its cul- its perfection in God, its origin and end, its t- it, it's um, what it is and what it's for, and because of this, creation shares in as the creation of this God the perfections that this God is by nature and has donated to it. So what does that mean? That the creation stamped good as it unfolds in accord with what God has called it to be and do is sharing in that very natural law, if you will, the very moral fiber of being that God is and has donated to the creation to share something of what God is by nature as gift. And because of that, it can't be eradicated, even in light of the fact that there has been a fall. So your your statement uh, that uh, God declared the creation good, uh, I think is a really important one to dig into because um, I think many people uh, don't perceive the moral content of the declaration. I think that they think of the world in a kind of I guess scientific way, in so far as they think, well, the material world is uh, this place where all these things can happen that can be good, uh, you know. Or what do you? What's the good? You know, what 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 good can you make of this? Or maybe maybe goods that are just simply understood at a kind of material level, like um, it's good to be 
nourished by food. It's good <laughs> to have uh, sunlight to give you vitamin D. And <laughs> you know what I'm getting at. You know all the you know in in that sense. But can we even can we even speak of a, you know goodness without uh, having a kind of larger moral understanding that yeah. gives us a sense of what good really means? Yeah, well, actually, that that brings us back to Lewis in Abolition of Man in, in, in a sort of oblique way. One of the points that he makes is that in rejecting the Tao, the positivists, you know, the people who reject it, and he uses a bunch of different terms for them, basically cannot critique it or cannot come up with any kind of ethical theory or system or oughts without falling back on the Tao. Right. Because sooner or later, their assumptions that they have to make in order to provide a critique, in order to insist on the importance of rationality, even that itself is an element of the Tao. Right. You know, in other right. words, for for Lewis, the Tao isn't simply moral. It, it involves all kinds of other dimensions as well. And as a result, you can't escape it. Even if you try to escape it, even if you try to reject it, you're going to be using parts of it. And this ties into the goodness of the creation, because however you define the goodness of the creation, it's going to have a moral dimension. It's going to have a, a dimension where things are fitting. Things work the way they're supposed to work. Um, they're intelligently designed to function well. Um, whether you're looking at beauty, whether you're looking at all of the, any of these things, what you're looking at is this broad vision of the Tao. Um, yeah, I think, I think when so, I think about the, you know, the, the objections, you know, they're they're coming from two directions. You know, you've you've identified one that Lewis is responding to, which I don't think many of our listeners, uh, maybe, maybe that's not fair to say, but I think some of our listeners are unfamiliar with, and that is um, the scientific approach to the material world abstracts from you know, rationality, things like purposes uh, and formal causes. In other words, what distinguishes a human being from, say, an ape uh, is uh, not just uh, the amount of DNA that's different, <laughs> but there, <laughs> there are purposes that human beings serve that apes do not serve that are natural mm -hmm. in the sense that they are, like we've just been talking about, bound up with the created order. Um, they're not just simply superimposed upon it. And so, and then there are ends, you know, so ends, you know, so forms and ends, you can't talk about ethics without forms and ends. Uh, if they're not grounded in reality, then they come from somewhere else. And where else could they come from? Well, from culture or from my desires or that kind of stuff. And so everything becomes kind of subjective and constructivist. If you lose sight of the sort of the, the built in forms and ends of things, but to the reform side of things, and I'm thinking mostly about you know some of our, our of our friends who are suspicious of the language of natural law. Their their objections either kind of go to the epistemological or the ontological. So the epistemological is because we're fallen, that means our ability to perceive God's purposes and creation are always skewed. Uh, and then on the other hand, the fall has affected the natural order in the sense that, yeah. you know, yeah. the, you know, death and bondage to decay and so forth consequently make the natural order send mixed messages, if you get my yeah. drift. 
And and I think this, I mean, this is very key to to um, addressing this issue because you're exactly right. I think some of the pushback we tend to see audience members and the like is that, well, any interpretation of the natural law apart from a Christian lens has to be a sheer human artifice. I mean, it has to be an artifact of, of the human, an invention and a social construct. And in and because of that, it has to be a distorted social construct in every way, because sin goes all the way down, and therefore anything we construct or build. And so you have in that particular kind of um, opposition to natural law, I think something is very telling about a distorted view of even Reformed theology, um, the first and foremost is they understand depravity as er- being able to eradicate the being that God th- that is good that God holds in, in into continuity, um, and so they almost give ontological dimensions. What do I mean by that? They almost give life to sin and evil as if it is something that God is basically sustaining in that state as something God actually is causing. And because of that, they, they, um, the goodness that being is gets distorted and, push, and, and gets evil gets pushed back up into God. Let me say it a different way. If God is being, it's a name of God, that God is the great I am, being itself, and that everything depends on God to be, then if evil is a being, then it too depends on God. So God must have evil and God as one of God's perfections. And so that's why I have a problem with this kind of, um, this interpretation of total depravity. And, and Augustine had a problem with it reading St. Paul, because he understood fully that to, to truly be is to participate in the perfections that God has given creation, which are something that is from his own, his own being, and sin is a lack in that. It's that which eclipses, inhibits the, the, the creature to fully participate in all that God wants. It is not its own being. It depends on being to be. It's like a, a healthy cell in which cancer latches on and only exists because of the healthy cell. And, and I think this is uh, another way of putting it is this way. And I think I, it, um, Paul Griffith in this great book, Intellectual Appetite, he's talking about Augustine. He, talk, he says, when we make things by reordering parts of the world as creatures, um, we, we are, in a sense, being like God, the creator, ordering things and, and, and you know, constructing things. Um, he says, but the qualification in part is necessary because our making, unlike God's action of creation, requires something that we have not made and can work on. In other words, it requires a creation that has its own being and has its own order. And this is something we didn't construct. And so any constructing we do presupposes that order, and therefore it outruns us. And so anything we do, even as a fallen creature, will have something about it that is from God's order in it that we can't throw as a human artifact, but is actually a vestige of God's, God's creation. And it's because of that, Lewis can say, there is a true natural law that even a pagan can understand something of because it outruns the pagan social construct. It's grounded in the order that God has given things, not in my trying to reconfigure it for my own fallen purposes.
Well, this brings us to something that I'd like to dig into a little bit, and that's that's Lewis's use of the term Tao. Um, now, if, if I understand correctly, it means way. Is that correct? The term literally means way? Yeah, that's one translation of it. Uh, the word Tao can mean a whole lot of other, it can mean a lot more than that. Um, it's actually pretty akin in many ways to logos in Greek. Uh, but it can also mean way. It can mean it, logos in the philosophical sense, not as word. Right. Um, but uh, yeah, it, it it's got a very broad range of meanings um, in in Chinese. But but you can look at it as the, uh, the the Stoic laws of nature. You know the way the the universe is governed, the logic and structure of of the universe, and the way things work. Um, it, it's it, it's got like I said it, in in Chinese philosophy it's a very broad term. So this broad this broad term, but even that you know when we think about lagas, uh, when we think about just how significant that 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 word is uh, in the sort of life of the mind in Greece, um, I'm assuming it has that same kind of large place in Chinese thought. Yeah, because of all of its uses. Except in Chinese thought, the Tao is ineffable. Okay. Um, in other words, what you the the Tao that you can you can identify is not the true Tao. Oh, okay. It is always something that is transcendent. It's ineffable. It's not something that you can really grasp as a human being, but you can still live according to it. Okay. So that's a, a, I think a significant difference, um, both mm -hmm. uh, among you know the way Greeks thought about lagos and of course the way Christians do because of self-disclosure revelation. Um, but uh, there's still something it kind of integral. In other words, there's something being said about kind of the nature of re of the world that we find ourselves in being in some sense ordered by this. Is that is that fair to say? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. And it's actually, I mean, it, you know, I don't, I don't want to go too quick to this direction, but it's a very comforting teaching. I mean, if you think about it, because I, mean, I was talking about this with uh, my pastor the other day, it, if there is an ineradicability, no matter how much we try to use technology and everything else to do damage to that stamp on things, right? And so we we can't unwrap, we can't kind of unravel it. So all our attempts to kind of, you know, guide the 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 you know, what, what they call guiding our own evolution, if you will, um, to create, you know, in their world, say, for example, a trans, you know, a, as an actual, uh, you know, type within the human male-female order. Um, it, it, it is not going to, that can't outrun the creator's stamp. And I think there is, this is something I don't think we, we really get a lot of analysis on, but there is a rigorous rebellion in society, it's almost as if fallen, rebellious humanity understands that there is an echo of God in creation that is moral, that they have more of an antenna for. That's why they're so rigorously trying to subvert it. Um, then even many Christians recognize that, that, that that's, a, that's a place in which we can actually address some of this stuff if they've written off other aspects of of what we're about as christians uh in advance you know for example just quoting bible verses or just talking about you know the theological structure of things um this is not to say that you abandon that it's just that as an extension of that 
this is what you would expect. I mean, another way of putting it is because we're realists, because we believe that creation is really God's creation, then we recognize that reality is something we will recognize and receive rather than invent or project, right? Yeah. Now, interestingly enough, once again, we've got Lewis here. Uh, one of yeah. the things that Lewis points out is that when you reject the Tao in, in the name of science, in the name of rationality, in the name of, of you know, positivism or whatever, that sooner or later you also reject knowledge. You reject mm. reason itself because reason is, is part of the Tao. And yeah. so what do you see in modern epistemology? A rejection of truth, a rejection of reason, a rejection of you know, all of these other things. Yeah. Right. Wasn't it and uh, in, in the, your example, a rejection of nature? Yeah. And of course, uh, there's a connection between rationality and goodness. And uh, wasn't it Lewis who said in, I think, Abolition of Man, when when you when everything that is good is debunked, all that remains is I want or something to that, that effect. In other words, what we, what we re, kind of are reduced to is just uh, desire. Um, yeah. And, yeah, Lewis, and, Lewis uh, was was discussing magicians and scientists. Yeah, and he said that the the classical understanding, the traditional historical understanding, is that the goal of life was to conform the soul to reality. Yes. Now the magician and the scientist try to to form reality according to their desires. And, and what's interesting there is this this then enters into that terrible terrain in which. We've basically eclipsed old faculty psychology um, in, in, in the church today. And I, I think we did it too soon. And I think actually it's far more wisdom than any of the psychological theories. Uh, you know, we you could go on and on. Faculty psychology. So, well, faculty. So, well, uh, maybe another way to put it, maybe just so audience will get where I'm going with it, is that, for example, us as human beings have certain kind of faculties. One would be our intellectual faculty, and one would be the, our, you know, volitional. Um, and I don't want to go too strong in the whole history of the volitional. But anyway, appetite and reason were very connected in the old way of thinking about things in such a way that, for example, you, you, um, you have an intellectual drive towards the true, but if your will is fallen, your appetites are distorted, you have a hunger both for the good but a distortion of it. So you hunger after something creaturely as though it's the ultimate good, and thus you distort the, the direction of, of your mind. So you may understand something intellectually fine, but because your appetite is so hungry for a different direction, it's going to bend that mind into that, that direction. Now, what we have going on now is we basically say the mind is nothing but a, nothing but a, a servant of um, the will. And I mean, one of the things about Christianity is the way in which our loves, as our loves are restored, so is, so is our, our ability to discern the Tao and the good and the truth, the beauty and the goodness. Um, but what we have today is really uh, um, the mind is really just a playing field of pre-conditions, um, and, and somewhat so is the will. So you have basically a whole history of you know economics, and that is so stamped you as a creature that your mind is basically an epiphenomenon, just the outgrowth of whatever social conditions are in place. 
and that it doesn't have the capacity to to receive and and relate the truth and and likewise the same with the will um so anyway that was kind of maybe i think i think uh kind of a man in the street way to kind of get at this or understand it is simply to think about just all the people that we've all known or maybe we a person we've actually been at one time or maybe still are if 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 we're not (laughs) for not uh you know fully um free uh a person who's say an addict person who is uh slave to his appetite in some sense his mind is uh a servant of the appetite and and we 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 know that that's not a good thing so this guy just thinks all day long about the next drink or the next high or whatever and so everything is in terms of his mind is just given over to that uh, we would, you know, the, the way they would talk about this in antiquity is that, you know, there's a, a correspondence, and I brought this up at the, the conference that Glenn and I were at. There's a correspondence between the ordering of the body and the ordering of these faculties. So, mm-hmm. so the head is where the judgment resides. Yeah. The chest, where the affections, so forth, yeah. and then you have the appetites you know, the stomach and the regions below it. <laughs> and a, a well-ordered person has that that hierarchy. So even your affections are subject to your judgments. Take it this way. Yeah. Like if you were to say, oh, I saw this beautiful girl walking down the street. You've seen that meme. You know, the guy is looking at the girl and he's got a, yeah. another girl on his arm, maybe his wife or his girlfriend, and she's appalled that he's checking yeah. out the other gal. Well, that's where your judgment is supposed to govern your appetites your and your appetite, affections yeah. and your infections. Yeah. So sometimes yeah. I think one of the things that we that we do in, say, sort of evangelical environments where we're like promoting having, you know, an emotional uh, yeah. kind of experience in worship is we unintentionally, maybe even intentionally convey the idea that you are a slave of your affections, that you yes. can't judge your affections. And, yeah. and that's not right. That's right. And, and, and I think that that is the thing is that 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 is what weakens the the role of the intellect. Right. Um, and, and that that's one of the things that you have kind of restored when the balance is done the right way. And I think this is where a lot of people in the reformed world, um, the connection they probably would agree with that once once you have things set off into the right direction, then you can begin to read those things that are ingredient in the fabric of the universe and creation the right way. Um, the only problem for them is is that it's voluntaristic, and it tends to be as though the the, the intellect and the judgment have such a minor role in that, or and are only um, at the uh, at the the whims of the affections and the desire. And I mean that's that, you know. It's a complicated thing, and I mean that's where you got to do good work on on teasing out those different dimensions. But I mean that I think there there is far more wisdom in actually addressing those. That's what Lewis was trying to do. I think Tolkien was doing, um, than just skipping over them to some kind of uh, therapeutic deism or or just contemporary you know therapy, which you you just said, Chris, is just basically what our, our evangelical churches have embraced today is that if you just, you know, see God as basically the compassionate, you know, loves you as you are figure, and that there is no reforming of the loves, 
much less an orienting of the mind towards contemplating the truthfulness um, of things and making proper judgments, then 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 we're going to read the Tao the wrong way. Yeah, and I think it's yeah. important yeah. to note, too, that we're not saying that the mind uh, is something that should be purified and abstracted from our affections mm-hmm. and appetites. Mm-hmm. It's, it's something that should be exercising uh, some, some ordering influence over those things. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the, the objection to a lot of this um, comes down to the idea that if you talk about the natural law, you know, I've had people tell me, well, they don't really have a warrant for believing these things. Well, in their minds, they do. Um, we may disagree with it, but they certainly seem to think they do. And that's, a, 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 frankly, a pretty useless argument with college students today because they don't really care if they've got a warrant for what yeah. they believe. Yeah, um, yeah. But along with that, uh, they, they claim it denies the noetic effects of the fall. That is to say, the effects of the fall on the mind. And my answer is no, it doesn't. I mean, if Paul can cite pagan poets as expressing truth, albeit in a confused way, obviously the noetic effects of the fall don't make it impossible for you to know anything. And further, if you take a look at Augustine and Augustine's theory of knowledge, he argued that Christ as the Logos was the mediator of all knowledge to all people, Christian and pagan alike. Yeah. That the pagans only knew what the truth that they knew, and they did know truth, yeah. through the intervention of Christ as the mediator, as the Logos. Even if they didn't know him salvifically, he was still at work in their minds to enable them to see truth. Because otherwise, yeah. it, otherwise it becomes completely impossible to explain how the pagan world did have some kind of a grasp of truth. And and I think I mean I think I mean sometimes it's the biblical language itself that removed from that world can can often sound very oppositional, right? Paul, I claim to know nothing but Christ, right? It's it, it but but when he's dealing with comparatives, what he's trying to do is talk about the superlative, right? That the the ordering principle of all reality is Christ. So if 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 it was a comparison between principles, ultimate principles of all intelligibility. Christ absolutely nothing everything else is nothing but then Paul doesn't leave it there you know and, and I'll give you a great example when he goes into Athens uh, well let's just say talk about Acts 17 right Paul is is being looked at suspiciously by the philosophers because it looks like he's announcing a new god which on the one hand was fascinating but on the other hand was politically disturbing um, and so Paul has to basically give some kind of apologetic for what he's up to. And so one of the things he's going to do is, of course, you know, he, he's op- opposed to any circumscription, any, any creaturely way of defining God idolatrously, for, forbidden in the commands. But then all of a sudden he's going to have to give an account for why in the world a human being named Jesus Christ can be a creaturely um, – visible manifestation of the invisible God. And so one of the things he notes, we all know this, Noel, is the unknowability of God. The temple to the unknown God is something he very positively talks about. He talks about the way in which I notice, okay, you have a bunch of temples given to kind of circumscribed idols, right? Attempts to kind of locate the deity. Um, But I notice you have one that doesn't. 
that is open completely to the unknown God. Um, and so this he looks at very favorably. Well, this one I manif- I'm going to reveal to you today. So that one that you actually have a proper antenna for, the one that is not, that is superior to all others because it can't be located within a temple. It can't even be known. This is where you get Dennis the Areopa guy, right? It, this one can't even be known. But I'm going to reveal to you today that this one who is ancient, and that's another key. They didn't like new things. They needed something. This one is so ancient, it's the ancient of days. It's the creator in which you live, move, and have your being. This one has given us its visible, concrete, proper medium in Jesus Christ. And so what you have here is him, Paul, appealing to something there in not, he's not appealing to the Old Testament because the pagans didn't have the Old Testament. He's appealing to the philosophical and religious traditions and showing where that one gap that opened itself up to a non-idolatrous um, way of, of talking about God as, you know, incomprehensible and not idolatrously limited, he is going to use as a vehicle for communicating the truth of the gospel. And he's going to show Christ as the fulfillment of that, that longing. A couple of quick thoughts. I think one of the things that kind of is at root uh, to or uh, in this uh, objection to natural law within reform circles is we have a lot of folks who justifiably treasure the scriptures, yeah. and they're 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 concerned that an acknowledgement of natural law would in some way devalue the scriptures. And I think yeah. that's something that we ought to take seriously and, and respond to. Yeah. But I also think that there's an inability for us, just at a kind of at a at a at a, uh, at a certain level, to kind of deal with the mixed messages um, that we 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 experience all the time. So, for what I'm getting at is this: so Paul says, "Excuse," because he talks about accuse and excuse when he's referring to this sense of the conscience that we possess. So, uh, in other words, we suppress the truth. So how can you suppress something you don't know anything about? That, that's, yeah. that's the puzzle. Uh, so if I'm completely ignorant, I'm completely innocent. In other words, I've, I, I'm not committing yeah. any sins <laughs> that yeah. I can be condemned for because I don't know anything. But if I do know something... Uh, then why do I do the thing that I'm not supposed to do? Well, it's because we're yeah. fallen. So the, so you, I think a beautiful, not beautiful, that's not the right term for this. I think one of the best, <laughs> one of the best illustrations of this in literature is Gollum. Hmm. Gollum knows what's right the whole time, and he's tortured by that. And yeah. he suppresses it on an ongoing basis. Yeah. Every yeah. once in a while, it peeks out. Every once in a while, there's a little bit, little glimmer of uh, Smeagol, uh, and yeah. those glimmers give us some sense that this guy or this creature um, is fallen. Yeah, yeah. So there, there, there's still something there, and I think that's something. And every once in a while, when we think about like the insights of, say, some great philosopher in the past. Well, of course, it's yeah. all God that, you know, anything they get right is in some sense a well, reflection of God's truth. And, and But that's, that's the thing is, I mean, I remember Nicholas last saying, why is it that people think that what a human does isn't part of God's creative act? 
Um, I mean, J- I mean, Isaiah tells us, I mean, what, what is, uh, let me see, the, the verse, Isaiah 26, 12. Oh, Lord, you will ordain peace for us, for indeed all that we have done, you have done for us. Um, and, and again, it, it's not the sin part. The sin part is the lack in, in all of that. That's that's the part where we're the, the eclipsing and distorting. But but it's the fact that anything you know in common grace, if we're going to use that language, or or in in kind of God's providence, the way He sustains creation for the readying of it for redemption. Um, the fact that a human does something that can can refract some semblance or vestige of the truth, beauty, or goodness of God, goodness of God is somehow taking away from God. Um, is already working from an assumption that there is a creation that is autonomous from God, a pure nature, as uh, Hans Borismer would say, versus one that owes every perfection and good, as, as you know, the book of James tells us, to the Father of lights. I'd, um, I'd just like to return quickly to my comment about Scripture, because I don't want to kind of lose yeah, sight of that. Yeah. Um, so what is the role of Scripture? For one, when it comes to law, it's to reinforce it. In other words, uh, it's to, to say very clearly something that we already uh, know to be the case and, and it says it in such a way that we can't weasel out of it. <laughs> in other words, the, yeah. law, the, the given law, the law of Mount Sinai is just, is just like, okay, how, now, now what are you going to do? Yeah. The other part of it, though, is what do the scriptures point to? Well, they point to Christ. And yeah. this is why this sometimes this puzzles me. No one, no, no argument for natural law that I've ever, that I've ever come across, uh, maintains that you can know, you know, salvation by grace through the natural law. That's right. You know, yeah. there, there's no place. So all the natural God and does is, talk is con- condemning us. Yeah. It just, right? it just it condemns us. Talks about holds us to condemnation and tells us really what we should be doing, but we're not. That's right. So, <laughs> so the, you know, the law in Scripture reinforces the condemnation that we already know to be the case. Yeah. You know, and that's what Paul talks about in Romans 1 and 2. We're, we're already condemned, and deep down inside yeah, we know yeah. it. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, well, I, I, I know, Glenn, this is your topic, so we should probably get back to you at some point. <laughs> sorry, sorry. <laughs> oh, no, I, you guys are doing fine. We get excited with good topics. <laughs> yeah. So um, actually, I, I wanted to, actually, to steer this in a slightly different direction. Um, again, coming off of Lewis, where he talks about, I think, two different things that are that are closely related. One of them is that the Tao is not perfectly known, but it develops over time. So the earlier versions of the golden rule are negative. Don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you. Jesus turns it to a positive. Okay. Mm-hmm. So there's this idea of development. There's also the idea in, in Lewis that different cultures will develop the Tao in different ways uh, mm-hmm. that are appropriate in their cultural setting. And this ties in with his appendix, which is a list of commonalities that you see across multiple cultures in terms of their, their ethical standards. Um, Lots of quotes there from all different kinds of sources. And the thing that is, that, uh, that's particularly intriguing about that is that it's an attack on the idea of cultural relativity in the sense that we, you know, just like we say beauty is in the eye, in the eye of the beholder, we also say that morality is in the eye of the beholder. There's so much difference between all these different cultures 
that there can't possibly be a, a natural law or a, a universal ethic of right and wrong. Um, Lewis shows by these quotes that actually you can identify several elements of this. Um, I believe he also says, I'm, I'm pretty sure uh, this is Lewis, where he talks about, for example, the law against murder. He says, every culture has a law against murder. However, they may define murder in different ways. So there may be, you know, you're, you're not allowed to kill people in your in-group, but if you kill somebody from your enemy tribe, that's not considered murder. Yeah. But, so there's a difference there, but there's still a law against murder. Um, yeah. You can have one wife or you can have many wives, but you can't have just any woman you want. Yeah. You know, so there, there are rules about sexuality. These kinds of things, he would argue, are expressions of the Tao that show up in different cultures. And I would, I suspect he would also argue if you pushed them that some of them end up actually being a bit of a distortion of the Tao, but nonetheless, you can see its imprint in them. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe a way to think about this would be to say, okay, every culture has a musical tradition and every musical tradition is participating in sort of the musical, you know, sort of the world of, world of sound and pitch and rhythm and so forth. So there are things that are true for every, you know, culture musically. They, yeah. they, they might not have the, the tablature, the, the names for notes and things like that, but they, they, they sing, they, they uh, play instruments and so forth. So in, in a way you could say, uh, kind of the quote laws of music, if that makes mm -hmm. sense, apply yeah. universally, but you've got a kind of working out of those laws yeah. in a particular way at a particular place. Well, and, and the thing that's interesting about that is the complementary nature of it. I mean, you you will have different cultures that have different kinds of emphasis with sound. You'll have um, those that kind of mimic nature. You think of like the music of the Andes. And they take instruments to kind of mimic the sounds, but then that creates kind of a, a melodic type of sound. And then you have cultures that are very rhythmic, but then you can actually bring those cultures together with a rhythmic and the melodic work together. And then you have some like the harmonic, the, you know, the, especially Western traditions of harmony. And, and you know, you, you get just this full spectrum of uh, in richness of sound and complementary, non-competitive. You know what I mean? It's not like, oh, you've got to throw your flute out for me to play my drum, right? No, wait a minute. I can play you my drum and your flute and you can bring your piano and you can bring your instrument and your instrument. And it's not cacophony that there is something that and then we can tell the difference between cacophony and and a kind of ordering of music that is um, soul enriching and and pushing us towards the transcendent. Um I mean, I think it's a good example. Uh, it, you know, it's, it's, I guess we, we need to do shows more on that. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, Tom, but I immediately go to the Far Side cartoon. Welcome to heaven, here's your harp. Welcome to hell, here's your accordion. <laughs> the Italians have just signed off. <laughs> yeah. 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 Yeah, the, then there's the other one, the definition of perfect pitch. <laughs> it's when the accordion hits the banjo when you throw it into the dumpster. <laughs> uh, well, I mean, I, I, I love banjos and I, mean, I, 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 I even, I even favor the accordion when I'm, when I hear it in Zydeco or 
maybe not so much in polka with uh, <laughs> I, I, I can't complain I play a medieval German bagpipe okay yeah. right yeah so but but you could but you could play it I mean not only with the instruments of its age but you could play it with instruments today and there is a fittingness that can be worked out and this is what I always talk about is um, you could think of the whole creation, you know, musically, and you could talk about the way that there can be cacophony, but there can be a harmonious and melodic and improvisational richness that moves towards resolution. And, uh, you know, I think Tolkien gets at this with, with in the Silmarillion a little bit of that, the kind of way in which creation starts to, you know, to play and improvise and, I mean, there's a lot of richness in the music analogy, and it's something I want, I, you know, we haven't visited a lot, um, but I do think it's not unrelated to this notion of, of the, the, the rhythms of the universe, of, of creation that are tied to the moral dimension, but this is where we're kind of shifting to the aesthetic, but I think they are fundamentally connected. Well, they are fundamentally connected in God. Well, you know, I think perhaps maybe people recoil a little bit at this point because they want objective moral truth and what yeah. what we've been describing seems to imply a kind of variability still even with culture with yeah. and they're afraid that that will eclipse so yeah. i think some people approach the subject of ethics the way they approach math they want that yeah. kind of uh that kind of reasoning that's syllogistic uh kind of reasoning yeah that this yeah. plus this equals this every single time without taking into consideration the extenuating circumstances that maybe you find yourself in. Well, as a simple way of looking at that, different cultures have different characteristic vices. Mm -hmm. yeah. And as a result, a proper application of the Tao in those cultures would put a lot of emphasis on countering those specific vices. Yeah. But another culture that doesn't have those vices won't have that same kind of emphasis. Yeah. And I think that relates when we, when we start talking about the virtues of particular cultures, it, we can also see, of course, correlates with virtues of particular people and the goods that those virtues are intended to uh, promote. So, you know, when I was in Cambridge, I uh, was on staff at a church that had five congregations and then the English-speaking congregation, we had people from like 20 to 30 different countries. And you could kind of predict which which uh, ethnic group was going to show up for church at what time, you know, <laughs> it just kind of like go through the, you know, the you, service. People were arriving half hour into the service, you know, that kind of thing. And it was just normal. And we all kind of accepted it. But what you what you what you could see is that when you emphasize one thing, you lose something else. So, you know, the people who were hypervigilant cultures that are hypervigilant on time tend to be more economically productive, but less socially rich, if you know what I mean. You know, there's, there's, a, yeah, there's yeah. less stress yeah. on re relationships. Yeah. There's less stretch yeah. on the richness of the, and the depth of those relationships because yeah. you can't schedule relationships in the same way right. that you can schedule making a car. <laughs> well, and that's, you know, that's one of the things I noticed when I was in uh, Cartagena in Colombia is that the, the, the sense of time is very fundamentally different and the processes of time and the connectedness to nature and family and, and celebration 
Um, and, and I think this is part of that, you know, the rich plenitude of creation that we can qualify and, and sometimes challenge each other. Um, and, and I think prior to technology and the like, most of us kind of functioned in a very similar ways, maybe. Um, but, I, but I do think that that richness um, is, is part of the created goodness of the fact that Christ is the desire of every nation, Right. And that every nation is not, I mean, there's a reason why they're not the same nation. Now, that is not exclusionary. That's harmonious. That's about that every tribe, and we, we have a unity in Christ, which means our, our what is you distinct and unique about us is not something to separate and isolate. And it's something that contributes to the richness of the whole. Um, and you think this is why I don't eradicate the Hellenic move of of, of Christianity from Judaism into the, the the Hellenic world, where we get the, the the language for our creeds and the language for our early theology. Um, and this is why I'm not going to jettison it. The gift and the contribution of that connection is such that the richness of the philosophical tradition allowed that biblical material to be unpacked in a way to communicate it into a more general audience and those that were just born into the house of Abraham, right? Um, and and I think, in, but the flip side is, as, as Glenn and Chris were saying, is that the, the content of the Ten Commandments and the, you know, the Beatitudes and then, of course, Christ's fulfillment of all of that is that that gives the fuller picture of what is hinted at in all of these echoes. These echoes are not complete. They're distorted. And actually, even our readings of the Bible are distorted. So we have to return to it over and over again. Right. That's the point of proclamation and continued going, you know, uh, you know submission to the word of God, right? Um, but but the thing is, is that they're not disconnected. They're only disconnected when they compete, and they only compete when something tries to take the place of Christ. Yeah, and that, that again, brings up the importance of Scripture, that uh, we only have a vague notion left to our own devices of the Tao. And as Chris pointed out, we're going to end up ultimately distorting that because our, of our, um, uh, our appetites, our, our belly, is, as uh, Lewis would put it, or our desires, what Scripture helps us to do is reorient us around what the Tao actually looks like, and it gives it to us in ways that are sufficiently rich and complex that we're never going to really plumb the depths of all of the implications of it uh, in this life. But it's there to provide a critique and a correction to us personally and to our cultures and nations and so on as well. I think maybe it'd be good for you know us to think a little bit about some of the benefits of having a sort of a strong conviction concerning the Tao or natural law, however you want to put it. For me, one of the things that uh, this conviction does is it reinforces God's creative authority over the world in the sense that if I thought the only place where there was some testimony of God's creative uh, activity in the world was found in the pages of Scripture, um, that would undermine the authority or at least the uh, obligation that we have, that's probably a better way to put it, to do what's right. 
because if there, if there's no sense that we have that's an, kind of innate, intuitive uh, of what's right and wrong, then um, we've got basically uh, kind of a weird kind of, I guess, uh, disincentive to learn right and wrong. Like when I when I, when I was when I was uh, an employee at State Street Bank in Boston, I was in college, and I mastered my 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 job in such a way that, you know, I could get it done pretty quick. And then I was able to enjoy myself, uh, for a little while on the clock. Now, one of the things that, you know, every once in a while they do is they'd want to teach, they want to teach me something new. And I, you know, so, that, so I, I would say, why do I want to learn something new? Uh, then I'd be responsible to do that thing. Um, I don't have any incentive. I'll be paid the same either way. <laughs> you, know, yeah. you know, so. But, yeah, that, 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 that five cent incentive. Yeah, <laughs> you know, but, whatever. But they, didn't, they weren't offering, <laughs> offering me a, a, a raise. They were, there was yeah. no, it, was, it wasn't like yeah. I was being paid on a kind of uh, commission basis or anything. It was, it was just simply, yeah. okay, you got some extra time here because you're really good at your work. Uh, we're going to give you more work. I'm like, why would I want that? Uh, yeah. You know, so I can, I get, you want me to be slower with my work? I can do that. <laughs> you know, but, but the, I guess the point is, is that you create the same kind of dynamic. Now, if, if we just simply know what's right and we're accountable for what's right, whether we want to be, uh, you know, accountable or not, and we, whether we want to know or not, then we're in a whole different s- scenario. Uh, yeah. And what what we really need at, at that moment is a savior, uh, yeah. because we've all fallen. We're all we're, we've fallen short of the glory of God. So we need that. So for, in my mind, the natural law reinforces, uh, yeah. you know, my obligation to do what's right and my need for a savior. Another thing it does for me is it ties together um, the what we were just talking about earlier the aesthetic and moral dimensions of life. Uh, the natural law helps us to bring those things together. I think sometimes yeah. uh, uh, people who have a, a passion for maybe the moral content of the Bible don't have a similar passion for the aesthetic sort of dimensions yeah. of Scripture, uh, and they downplay yeah. it, uh, or maybe yeah. even are blind to it. Uh, but the natural law brings that out. Well, that's what I often say with the metaphysical dimensions of Scripture. I'm not talking metaphysics in some kind of, you know, isolated science. I mean, there's a place for that. But but I'm talking about the implications that are tacit within any Christian claim of the Bible. But, I mean, maybe there's another thing, and I know, you know, kind of, I know we're getting late. But one thing I think some people will be a little reluctant towards is that, oh, wait, this is kind of a Catholic— nature that's going to reach be have the the kind of synthesizing capacity to gr- join hands with grace and become co- some kind of pagan holding hands with divine revelation um which i think is already a problematic interpretation has lost sight of really what the early church and what the bible has been up to but let's go let's let's look at it from a different angle um so so you had early say reform thinkers like uh, peter vermigli um, who will write a whole uh, excellent commentary on the Nicomedian ethics of Aristotle, yet challenge it at every point where it variegates from Scripture and um, and uh, Revelation. But he doesn't jettison it. 
And so a lot of the, you know, contemporary kind of Protestants with an allergy to anything other than just a Bible verse um, would say, well, wait a minute, why even indulge that endeavor? Why even acknowledge that Aristotle may have been a worthy partner? Why not just follow Luther and condemn all Aristotle, which, by the way, Luther didn't do that. You got to understand Luther's rhetorical and uh, hyperbole. Otherwise, you're not going to read Luther well. Um, Luther was very versed and very Aristotelian and Platonic, for that matter, in a Christian converted sense. Um, but, But I think what you have going on there, again, is a competitive view that it's either God as a super being in in opposition to creation um, and therefore uh, as standing over against it. So anything a creature does has to be thrown off and then anything God does has to be embraced. Whereas you don't recognize that anything Aristotle had that was true was actually a gift of God and that you can't jettison it because Aristotle isn't the only person involved in what Aristotle gave us, right? Um, there is a creation echoing through him. And because he, he discerned so many things in terms of the sciences, in terms of knowledge and the good, you can't just write him off as though he doesn't have anything to say. You need to show where what he says goes offhand and where what he says actually uh, gives us uh, something that contributes to discussing things from the angles he sought to discuss them from. Christians didn't start out with mastering every science. They actually had to enter that debate that was already going on for a long time as it entered a world that was very, you know, scientific in the old sense of the word. Well, we should probably get, we should probably bring this in for a landing as uh, uh, the grumblers like to, uh, Complain. Yeah, complain. <laughs> but uh, I know you have something to say there, Glenn, but uh, maybe you can take us in for the landing today. So I hand over the controls to you. <laughs> yeah, well, what, one more thing, just sort of on a pragmatic level. The very fact that there is a Tao is what creates conscience. It's yeah. what creates in us and in society the idea that there are things that are right and there are things that are wrong. And you know, no matter how you cut it, even if people deny that, they can't live like there isn't a right and wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, even even kids just past the toddler age know this. The sentence, it's not fair, is sort of ubiquitous on, on their lips when things don't go the way that they've got a sense of, of right and wrong. They've got a sense of fairness. And, and this is true of everyone. And without the Tao, it's very difficult to explain where that comes from. Right. right. So, again, don't, don't let the Chinese terminology throw you here. We're using Tao in Lewis's sense, which connects it into natural law and all of these other things. So I think it's a really important idea, and there's a whole lot more that we could, we could do with it. But yeah. um, this plane's got to land somewhere. <laughs> that's right. That's right. <laughs> well, thanks for landing the plane, Glenn. <laughs> anyway, we, we do appreciate uh, you're uh, getting all the way to the end of this episode. Uh, we also thank all the folks who give to the show on a regular basis. There are people who give to us through the Fight Laugh Feast Network, and we're very grateful for that. There are folks who give to the show through a, 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 our Patreon page, and we're grateful for that. And then there are even people who sort of chase us down and give us money through our website and so forth. And uh, just so you know, uh, the show uh, – pretty much just kind of breaks even. I mean, we, we don't take anything for ourselves. All the funds that come in go into the production of the show. 
But anyway, uh, thank you for listening. And uh, if you, uh, you know, want to reach us, you can do that through our uh, Theology Podcast page or through our Patreon account. Um, and uh, those, those notes do find their way to us. So thank you for those. Anyway, that's enough for now. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.